Take your Bible with me today, if you will, and open to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 25. Today is one of those messages, like last week was going to be, <clears throat> I'll bring it at a later time. This is an in-between kind of a message. Beginning next Sunday, we will start moving toward uh, the Passion Week and ultimately Easter Sunday. So we'll be looking at the Gospels and thinking about what Jesus did for us, and we'll be studying about that great sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And we will start that next Sunday morning. I hope you'll be with us as we make a journey to the cross and beyond. And uh, we talk about what Jesus has done. But this is one of those in-between messages, in-between a closing series about walking with God and between a series of messages about Passion Week. <clears throat> this is a message that, that God has been working on my heart. I shared a little bit of this message on a Sunday evening several weeks ago. Uh, not all of this message, but a little of it several weeks ago. I was trying it out on them before I brought it to you to make sure that it, was, uh, it came out the right way and said the right things. And so... Today I want us to be thinking a little bit about uh, the church and about the significance of the church and the importance of God's church. Let's bow our heads together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, I yield myself to you and I pray that you will help me this morning, that my throat will stay open <clears throat> and that I won't have uh, the feeling to cough and I'll be able to finish this message. Lord, I'm here because I believe what has to be said is so very important. And Lord, I pray that we'll have open hearts to hear what you have to say. I pray, Lord, that today you will speak to us from heaven. We've been in your presence singing holy, holy, holy with the angelic host. We've been thinking about that throne room where you are exalted above everyone and all others and all else. And Lord, I pray that that will continue even during this portion of the message. And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, an email came to me that was from Insight for Living. <clears throat> if you don't know Insight for Living, that's Dr. Chuck Swindoll's ministry. Uh, I have kept up with him through the years. I've listened to him uh, probably hundreds of times. I always enjoyed his preaching. Dr. Swindoll is probably one of the most influential ministers of the past half century. Uh, he's heard on thousands of radio stations. Uh, he's written 70 plus books, uh, some of which I've been privileged to read. Uh, he's pastored uh, four churches, but two of them are mega churches, one out in California and the other in uh, Texas, just, just outside of Dallas, where he is the pastor now, Stonebriar Community Church. But what really caught my attention about this email was it invited you to click on a link and to follow that link to find out why Dr. Swindoll had been out of the pulpit and it had been an unexpected absence. Well, you know how inquiring minds want to know. Well, at least my inquiring mind wants to know, so I, I clicked on the link. and It was to last Sunday's service uh, when he was preaching for the first time after uh, several months, uh, three or three and a half months or so, that he was out of the pulpit. And it was a beautiful service. I listened to the entire service. I skipped a little bit of the music, but for the most part, I listened to the entire service and the entirety of his message I listened to. And he brought a message from Acts chapter 9 uh, when the blinding light struck uh, the Apostle Paul down. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And 
Uh, he drew some lessons out of that story about Acts or about uh, Paul in the book of Acts that paralleled some things that he had had happening to him uh, during the course of his illness. But just to make it story quick, you don't want to get caught up in the details too much. He is 89 years of age, so keep that in mind. And he's in good health. His mind is sharp. Uh, his body seems to be strong. But uh, at the end of October, he fell at his house. And when he fell, uh, he hit the back of his head. He blacked out, didn't know that he fell, hit the back of his head and split his, the back of his head open, and he began to bleed profusely, bleeding out profusely. Uh, when he came to, he realized that the bleeding was a real problem, that he could continue to bleed out and it could take his life. And thankfully, his wife was there. His daughter lives a couple of houses down, apparently. <clears throat> and they called 911. They got him uh, to a hospital. Talks about putting the staples in the back of his head, uh, how interesting that must have been. And uh, he talked about what they discovered in the process of why they were looking for why he would pass out to begin with. And what they discovered was that his blood pressure was dropping out on him. It would just completely drop out, and the reason it was dropping out had to do with a heart valve. One of his heart valves was no longer working. He said he didn't even know there was such a thing, jokingly, that there was a heart valve. Uh, didn't know that uh, he had any problem with his heart valve. He'd been going to the cardiologist, didn't know he had any problem with the heart valve, but here he is needing a heart valve replacement. Usually a man that age, 89 or so, they might not do the surgery unless he's very healthy very strong, and he was very healthy, very strong. And so they did the surgery. He came through it fine. Last Sunday was his first Sunday to preach to the church. And he announced what would be his coming messages from some of the saints, great saints of old, for the coming Sundays. But what impressed me, and the reason why I mentioned this story to you, is before he began the message, he made his way to the pulpit, and he stood before his people, and he began to tell them how much he loved them. He said, I've missed you. I want to be here. This is where I want to be. This are, these are the people among whom I want to spend the rest of my life. He talked about the importance of the relationship that he has with the people and the people have with him. He thanked them for cards and various other means of reaching out to him during the course of his illness. Uh, he thanked them for their kindness and for their love that was shown toward him and toward uh, his wife and toward the members of his family. But you could just see a pastor pouring his heart out, talking about how much he loves his church, how much he loves his people. A couple of times uh, he took out a, a uh, Kleenex. I got this for a different reason. But uh, he took out the Kleenex and he wiped his nose and because uh, there, were, there was deep emotion in what he was sharing. There were tears that welled up in his eyes and would run down his face as he was talking about he loves the church. He loves his church. He's thankful for the love of the people for him and him for the, uh, his love for the people and how much he loves God's church in general. I thought one thing that was interesting that he said, that he had been watching all the weeks he'd been out of the pulpit. <clears throat> he'd been watching the services online, like we broadcast ours online. And um, he said he thoroughly enjoyed it. He witnessed their Christmas program. He was there through means of technology for the New Year's Eve service and for the Sunday services. He said he watched all of those services. But he said watching church through a television lens and through a television screen, and these are his words, is a little bit like taking a shower with a raincoat on. 
I've heard people say it's sort of like pulling up next to a fire. You know the kind that are on your television screen trying to warm yourself next to one of those kinds of fake fires? It just was not the same as being in the service that day. He was grateful for it. It's necessary for people who have providential hindrances. But he was grateful to be among the people again and to be able to be sharing life with the people in the congregation. As I saw him there saying what probably many pastors I know I could say about our church, hearing him pour out the emotion that he feels for the church and for his congregation, I couldn't help but think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. There was the encounter that Jesus had with his apostles, his disciples, and he asked them a question. He said, who do men say that I am? And they began giving him answers. They say you're this, and you say you're that, and this and that. And then he turns to them and he asks them directly, who do you say that I am? And, of course, if you remember the story, it was Peter who was always seemingly the first to speak up in these kind of situations who spoke up and gave that incredible testimony about Jesus. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus, after he'd heard that, turns to Peter and says, Peter, you didn't learn that from man. God had to show that to you. And then he said, on that testimony that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to, and here comes the phrase, build my church. And there was Jesus on that mountaintop looking out over the future, looking into the distant future, realizing that what he had come to do was to save men and women and to bring them together into local bodies like this called the church. And there he was looking into the future planning to build, and notice the words, his church. It's not our church, not your church, not the deacon's church. It's his church. And he was looking forward into the future with great fondness and with great joy and with great love, like a pastor looking out over his congregation for the day that that church would come into existence and that church would begin to grow and would begin to expand. If you don't know how God feels about the church, I want to take a few moments and I want to try to enlighten you on that. There are several metaphors in the New Testament that God uses related to the church. For instance, he uses the metaphor of a bride. He is the bridegroom. We, collectively, are his bride. What we're doing today is we're preparing ourselves for the wedding day. What does any bride do? She works with her hair and gets the makeup all together, and she wants to make sure the right dress, and it's him the right way, and it's, it fits exactly as it should. She wants to be as beautiful as she can possibly be for her wedding day when she and her groom will be united in marriage. And he likens us to the bride, the New Testament does, to us as a bride and we're preparing ourselves because one day our groom, the one who loves us and the one whom we love, is going to come and he's going to get us and he's going to take us to his house. He's built rooms there for us, plenty of places for us to live, and we're going to dwell with him there forever and forever. And so you hear this incredible metaphor about 
how God feels about the church, how Jesus felt about the church as he was looking down through the ages that were yet to come, some 2,000 years down through the ages, and he was looking at the church he was going to build. You begin to see, to him it's his bride. It's his bride. He uses the metaphor, the Scripture uses the metaphor of a body. The metaphor of a body. It's one body, but it's made up of a lot of different members. Some of those members are very public, very visible, very obvious. You can see them. Other members are behind the scenes, uh, and you know when they're not working properly. You can feel the effects when they're not working properly. But all of them, when they're working as they should, working together, is for the greater good of the whole. And who is the head of that body? Who, Who is the brain that gives all of the direction, that keeps all of that body functioning as it's supposed to function? It's Jesus. He's the head. Of the body. And we are members of his body. And I'm reminded again of the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, No man ever yet hated his own body. No man ever yet hated his own body. I mean, we all take interest in our bodies to try to do the best we can to take care of them. And he uses that as one of the analogies, one of the metaphors. Because he's speaking about how he cares for and how he gives direction to those of us who are members of the body. And let me ask you a question. When you have members of your body that aren't functioning properly, doesn't it distract from the other members of your body? When I walk up those steps and I don't feel the steps beneath my feet, you don't think that affects the other parts of my body? The same with you. Our bodies are important. He understood the significance of our bodies. By the way, he's the one who said, I put you where I want you in the body. He uses the metaphor of a temple or a building. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. We are the living stones. And he's putting us one by one in this building. One by one. He's adding us to this building. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to fill that sanctuary. He's going to fill that building with his presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul asked the question, don't you, and the word you is plural, not you individually, but don't you plural as a group, a body, a church, the Corinthian church, don't you know that your body, this congregation, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Did you know that we are? This building is not a sanctuary, but do you know that we are a sanctuary? He is the foundation. We are the living stones, and he inhabits our presence when we gather together. Yes, he's with you. Your individual body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but he says we collectively are his his temple. We collectively are his sanctuary. He's here in our very midst. He likens or uses the metaphor of an army to speak of the church. We are an army. He is the commander-in-chief. He is the general who gives the orders. We are the soldiers in this army. He gives us a uniform, doesn't he? We read about it in Ephesians chapter 6, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, on down to the feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. We have these different parts of this armor because we're in, a, we're in an army together. You know, I've never been in the military. <coughs> I've never been in the military, but I have talked to my dad many times before he passed 
about his time in World War II, being in the Air Force, what was then the Air National Guard, or the, uh, yes, the Army, the Army Air Corps, excuse me, the Army Air Corps. But being in the Air Force, what's called the Air Force now, and I can remember him telling me about serving with a group of men that were his friends to the last day of their lives or to the last day of his life and got together every year. I mean, you make friends, lifelong friends in the army. You bond yourself with other men who are serving, other women who are serving alongside of you. You learn to depend on them. You learn to rely on them. They are your life source. When you're deployed somewhere and you're fighting on behalf of, of the nation, and Jesus is our commander-in-chief. He's the one who gives us our orders. and We march together into the great struggle. His church marches together into the great struggle of good versus evil in the world in which we live. A metaphor that he uses of the church is that of a family. I love this one especially. Not that I don't love the bride or the body or the building, the temple or the army, but I love this one especially. He says that we can call him our father. He uses the most uh, intimate word that you would use in calling your father. I never called my dad father. I called him dad. Whatever the most intimate word you would use to call your dad, daddy, papa, whatever that word would be, it was Abba, father. Is a word that showed the endearing of the father's heart toward his children and the children's heart toward their father. And he says, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we belong to one big family. You know what we do on Sundays? We gather together uh, around the table uh, to be able to enjoy a spiritual meal together, to be able to fellowship with one another, to be able to sing praises to the Almighty God, to be able to serve each other because we're a family. You remember that family member that liked to sit at the table but never liked to serve the table? They waited for you to go in the kitchen and get the mashed potatoes and the green beans and the roast and whatever else it was that was supposed to be brought out, you thought to yourself, you're part of this family. You get up and get in there too, right? We're family. And you, you, you can, listen, I can say a lot of things about my two much older sisters, but don't you say anything about my two extremely older sisters. We're family. And he says the church is like a family. The church is like an army. It's like a sanctuary, a temple. It's like a body. It's like a bride. I, I like this one. He says it's like a flock. Jesus, looking out 2,000 years, looked at, looking down through, through history, 2,000 years, off into the future, said, I'm going to build my church on this solid foundation that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's going to be like this when you understand the church and you see the church. It's going to be like this. You're going to be like a, you're going to be like a flock and I'm going to be your shepherd. We are sheep of his pasture. Do you know some of the dumbest animals on earth are sheep? That fits me perfectly well. Some of the dumbest animals on the face of the earth are, are sheep. You understand that they have to be led to pasture land. They have to be led to still waters. <clears throat> they have to be taken care of and watched after. They have no defense mechanism to be able to fight off any kind of enemy like a wolf that would try to destroy them. All they have is their trust in the shepherd. 
And you realize that the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and the shepherd knows his sheep by name, and he calls them by name, and when he calls them by name, even if there are several flocks that are all together in one area, when that shepherd's voice is heard, his sheep know that he's calling them out of the rest of them, and they follow their shepherd because they love their shepherd. He takes care of them. He feeds them. He shears them. He watches over them. He provides for them. He protects them. He saves them from the enemies that are against them. And God says, that's my church. That's my church. I, I'm, the, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the great shepherd. You are the flock of God's sheepfold. Now, just two others, if I may. Because I want you to see the church differently. I want you to not only hear the words of Dr. Chuck Swindoll as he's talking to his church and this incredible love that he's pouring out on his people and his people are pouring out on him and the love that they have for one another. I, I want you to see Jesus looking down through the ages, looking into the future and seeing what he said he was going to build that was going to become his instrument for changing the world. The church, the local church, the body of believers, he uses the metaphor of a vine in branches, uh, a vineyard. You ever seen a vineyard growing? It's fascinating, isn't, isn't it? You see a vineyard growing and you have the vine. Who is the vine? The vine is Jesus. And who are the branches? The branches are you and me. We are the branches. And where do we get our life from? Is life within us? No, life is not within us. Life is in the vine. And as we abide in the vine, the life of the vine flows into us and out of us and through us so that we begin to produce the fruit that we're supposed to produce. And that brings glory to God and that brings benefit to others and that brings blessing to our own lives. And what do you do with the vine? You go around and you make sure that it's pruned and you make sure that it's cared for. And those branches that are laying on the ground, you make sure that you lift them up. You lift them up so that they can continue to bear that, that fruit. So you lift them up, and there's great care that is taken by a vine dresser to take care of the vine and all of the branches. And he is the, he is the vine dresser. He is the vine. <coughs> he is the vine, and we are the branches. And as we abide in him, it's him that produces the life that we need in this life. And then he uses the metaphor of an assembly a called-out body of people, the people who hear that there's an announcement to be made, and they leave wherever they are, and they gather together to be able to hear this significant and important announcement, and we assemble ourselves together. You say, what are you telling me, Pastor? What I'm telling you is that when God looks out at his church, he looks out at this church, he looks out and he sees people that he loves. He sees people that he has placed in this church. He sees people who have roles to play in this ministry. He, has, he sees people that he wants to make fruitful. He sees people who desperately need the New Testament church. They desperately need the New Testament church. He sees people who are a part of what he is building to this very day. Do you realize that Jesus is still building his church? 
He's still adding members to his bride, preparing his bride. He's still adding members to his body, putting people into his body. He's still putting the living stones in place on that foundation and so forth. God is at work in his church. But I want you to understand what I'm trying to communicate. Maybe not as well as Dr. Swindoll communicated. It's certainly not as well as Jesus communicated. God loves his church, and we should as well. I would even say this to you, that God has given to us the church for the purpose of taking care of us and protecting us and keeping us on the straight and narrow path. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book. A lot of debate as to who the author of the book of Hebrews was. Some people believe it was Paul. Others believe it was Barnabas. There's other ideas. The author is not identified in the book, so none of us can say dogmatically. You You have to deduce it from other things that are within the book. But the book is written to a Jewish congregation. I don't mean a a group of Jews who were practicing Judaism. I'm talking about a Jewish congregation that had become believers in Jesus and were now followers of the Christ. They were followers of the Christ. And as he writes this letter, there are those in this congregation that are beginning to turn around and go back into Judaism. It's just hard for us to imagine, 21st century American Christians, we, we just we can't imagine it. You have no idea. I have no idea what it was like to be a first century Christian and the price that you had to pay to follow Jesus. Your family would disown you. They wanted nothing to do with you because you left Judaism to follow Jesus. Your friends would turn on you. Your business partners would abandon you. If you want to get a job in the Word was out that you were a follower of Jesus. It was virtually impossible to find that job because nobody wanted to hire a follower of Jesus. You were looked at as a turncoat, and consequently, your life was difficult. There was persecution that was constant against those of the early church that were having to deal with it on a regular basis. And these Jews who had come to faith in Jesus and who were now following the Lord, being followers of Jesus Christ, were having this kind of persecution, and some of them had decided it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And they had turned around, and they'd gone back into Judaism. I mean, after all, that was what was familiar. I mean, for millennia, they'd done these ceremonies. For millennia, they'd done these rituals. For millennia, they'd gone through these feasts and festivals. They knew it like the back of their hand, but following Jesus, that's all new. That's all different. The feasts and the festivals aren't there. This is the new way of following Jesus. This isn't like the old covenant. There's something different about following Jesus. And so there was the persecution that was happening to them. There was just the fact of being new believers and wanting to go back to what was familiar, but they were abandoning the faith. They were walking away from the faith. So the author of this book sits down and he writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to say to them, don't do it. Don't do it. He, he does it in a great way. Uh, he does it by talking about how Jesus is superior to everything else. He, he is greater or superior to the angels because he's the son of God. He's greater and superior to Moses because he's the faithful builder and ruler of God's house. He's superior to Joshua 
because he gives true and eternal rest. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood because he is the eternal priest. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is greater than the old covenant, this new covenant that he's introduced. He's greater than the heroes of faith because in chapter 12, he is the founder. He is the perfecter and the founder of the faith. He's greater in every way, and he goes through the book over and over showing the, the greatness. As a matter of fact, if, if you're reading through the book of Hebrews from the translation that I'm reading at least, or if you want to get to your Strong's Concordance and follow it, you can do it that way as well. Thirteen times in the book of Hebrews, he uses the word better. It's better. It's a, it's, it's a better priesthood. It's a better covenant. It's a better resurrection. It's a better, it's a better, it's a better. What's he doing? He's looking at him and he's saying to him, look, look folks, you're abandoning what is better for what is less. You're abandoning, abandoning what is superior for something that is inferior. Don't do it. And then, then he gives five warning passages, which I believe are all written to believers in Jesus. The book of Hebrews is written to believers in Jesus. Nobody loses their salvation but he's warning them. And what are the warnings about? The warnings are when you turn away from Jesus and you walk back into Judaism, you willfully do so. You're going to have consequences for doing so. So he's not only telling them about what's better, he's warning them about the consequences when you turn around and you walk away from Jesus. But then he comes in chapter 10 and he says, you know, that church, that church, I have provided that church to be your safety net. I have provided that church to be your safeguard against the temptation to walk away unless you neglect the assembling together of the believers. Notice what he says beginning in verse 19. He says, therefore, will you notice the next word? <coughs> Brethren. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. We don't have to go through the temple. We don't have to go through the, uh, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. We, we now go through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself right into the very presence of the almighty God. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, now he's going to give them three instructions. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near because we've been purified. We've been purified by the blood of Jesus. We're purified by his word. Draw near. Number two, verse 23 says, let us hold fast. Not just draw near. I want you to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to your profession of faith. Don't turn around. Don't go back. Draw near knowing that you've been cleansed. Come to God. God wants to help you. Hold fast to what you know to be the truth. Verse 24, he says a third thing. And one more I want to give you. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Did you know that you come to church to be stirred up? You say, Pastor, I don't like to go to a church that's stirred up. 
Let me just tell you, it's a whole lot better than going to a church that's dead. When he talks about being stirred up, we're supposed to be encouraging one another, helping one another to walk in the faith, to be able to be faithful to God, to not turn around and walk away, to be able to endure the persecution and the hardship and the difficulties. We are a family. We are a body. We are his bride. We are an army fighting shoulder to shoulder. We are a part of this thing that he's building called the church, and we help each other. We need the church because we help each other. And when you come, you ought to be stirred up to love and to good works. You ought to be stirred up to love and to good works. And and listen, you can't do this if the the next thing is true. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As is the manner of some, by the way, Those that are forsaking the assembling of themselves together are sitting ducks. They are easy prey for the devil to take down. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's interesting here, there's several things interesting here I can't get to, but he uses a word here, assembling. Episynagogue. You can hear the word synagogue in it. Instead of using the normal word you would think for the gathering of the church, he uses a, another word altogether, and the reason is believed because the word for church had become so generalized that it referred to everybody in the body of Christ. But he wasn't speaking to everybody at this moment in the body of Christ. He was speaking to these believers who needed to gather together in their local church for the purpose of being stirred up. You need to be there because that's where you're going to find comfort. You're going to find peace. You're going to find people to help. That's where you're going to find truth and teaching and love and encouragement and all the things that you need to stay faithful in the midst of the difficult days in which you live. And it's going to get more difficult till the day, he says. That's the the day when Jesus comes. That's the day when we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our works will be evaluated by him as to whether they are worthy of, of being rewarded or not. As you see that day approaching, as it's getting closer and closer, you don't need less of those gatherings together. You need more of those gatherings together because in the gathering together, there is the encouragement that comes out of it. Sounds exactly the opposite of a lot of church methodology that I hear today. Because here's the important thing. God has created the church, and God is working in his church. If it's a church where the Bible's being preached, that's not every church. If it's a church where God is being exalted, Jesus is being exalted. If it's a church that's calling people to faith, to become followers of Jesus Christ. If it's a church... They're standing true to the truth and not adjusting the truth to accommodate the culture in which it lives. 
If you're in a church that's alive, then that's a church to which you should be a part of and you should gather with so that you can be stirred up, so that you can continue to march forward and stay faithful to the Lord Jesus and not walk away, not turn your back on, not go a different direction. The church is not the problem. The true church is not the problem. The problem is when you start neglecting it. When you make it a secondary or a, a third or fourth priority of your life and you don't understand the significance of it. Dr. Swindoll stood there and he loved on his church and he talked about how much he loves the church and the church loves one another and loves Jesus. Jesus stood on that mountain looking down through the ages And he saw the church and he said, I'm going to build my church on that foundation, Peter, that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. He gives us repeated metaphors of the church so that you can understand that he wants you to grasp the significance of the church. He comes here in Hebrews and he says, it's a place of safety and security where you come when you're shaky and uncertain and you get stabilized by the other believers who are around you. Because we need each other. Amen? In the world in which we live, in the day in which we live, you don't need less of the church. You need more of the church. You need more of the scripture preached and taught. You need more of the fellowship of believers amongst themselves. You need more of the observance of the of the of the ordinances of the church. You need more of those opportunities, the Bible in small groups. We need more of it, not less of it. Why? Because when you get separated from the church and you start neglecting, (coughs) start neglecting the church, the end result is you become easy prey for Satan to take you down. Now, I'm not arguing how many services you should have on a Sunday. I'm not going to argue with some of you. Jesus could be here tonight and you wouldn't be here anyway. Because you don't yet understand the significance of the church. You don't understand the importance of the gathering of believers. You don't see how God sees the church. You are not the church alone. We are the church together. We are the sanctuary And he visits us. Did you not sense that in the singing of the music this morning? Did you not sense his presence? I couldn't hardly keep the tears back. He is in this place. We don't need more. We don't need less. We need more of whatever that may be in any given church, whatever they determine is the right thing for them to do. They don't need less of it. They need more of it. And so much the more as you see the day approaching because here's what's happening in modern American society. We're not turning away from Christ because of persecution. I mean, there may be some persecution We have no idea what it was like in first century. You have have never been persecuted like those of the first century were persecuted. I've never been persecuted that way. But we're turning away from the church for other things that have become our idols. 
that have supplanted the significance and the importance of God's church in the world in which we live. I'll give you three thoughts of application. Number one, get in the church. Get in the church. You say, Pastor, are you talking to me? I'm not a member yet. <clears throat> I'm planning to come to the next to the next starting point, but I'm not a member yet. You're talking to me. Well, no, not necessarily. I do want to say that if you're not a member of the church, get in the church. We'd, we'd love. If God is leading you here and God has placed you here and you're coming here on a regular basis, you, you're here obviously getting something that God is doing in your life from our congregation. We need to know who's on our team. And the next starting point is April the 14th. Come join us. Find out who we are and make a decision. Because if you're not going to get in our church and commit yourself to it, you need to get in some church. Bible preaching, gospel preaching church. You need to get in it, and you need to get with it and get busy in that church. Get in. But I'm not talking about joining the church so much. I'm talking about get off the edges to the members. This is the body of Christ. This is his family. We're an army, and we need everybody. We're a sanctuary where the presence of God dwells. We're his bride. We're supposed to be working together to be the best bride we can be <coughs> for when Jesus comes. We're sheep of his flock. He is our shepherd, and we want to come together, and we want to know the voice of our shepherd. We want to love him. We want to honor him with our lives. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying get off the fringes and get in the church. Can I just say something? Six minutes, seven minutes before a service begins, six minutes, seven minutes after a service begins are perhaps the most important minutes of any church service that we have. Because in those first minutes before the service begins, you have an opportunity to get to know people around you and fellowship with them and understand something about their lives and connect with them and start loving them as we're supposed to love one another and bringing encouragement to them as you're opening up to them and they're opening up to you. And especially if it's a guest who's sitting amongst us to learn their name so that we can call them by name. I have a hard time with that but doing our very best to learn names and help people to feel welcome in those six or seven minutes after the service is over, not to leave like a bullet out of a gun, but to stand and recognize we're a family. We're part of his flock. We're part of his body. I don't want my arm to check out at 6 p.m. I don't want my nose to be taken off at 8 p.m. I want all the members of my body working together, right? Get in the church. Quit hanging out on the fringes. Quit playing the game, checking the box, and decide, this is where my heart is. I mean, put it all in. Give your heart all in. Number two, get connected to people. No church ever feels like your church until you start connecting with people. I've watched people for 41 years here, 45 years total, but most importantly, these last 41 years. You know, some people come into a church and they automatically start connecting. Other people come into a church and they sit over to themselves and all by themselves and they never connect with anybody and it's not often, that, it's, not, it's not unusual, I should say, that they don't end up leaving. 
we got to get to know each other. We've got we to get to know each other. And you can't know everybody that's in this room. Do y'all even know my name? <laughs> Let me back up here. I don't want to make you sick. You can't know everybody that's in this room, but you've got to know somebody that's in this room, several somebodies that are in this room, where you're connecting and doing life together. That's why life groups are so important. I realize life groups are about studying the Bible. Please don't misunderstand what I'm about to tell you. Life groups are absolutely important about studying the Bible, but they are equally important, if not more so, for people to be able to connect with one another. I have been so proud of so many of our life groups. When there's been a crisis in one of the members' lives in a life group, to go to a funeral home or go to a hospital and see many of the life groups showing up to express their bereavement or to provide some encouragement or bring parts of a meal for them to be able to have a meal. That's what it's about. Get connected to people. Number three, get involved in ministry. Get involved in ministry. We can't all have the same ministry. Some of us are getting to an age where we can't do what we used to do. I can't do what I used to do. <coughs> can't do what we used to do. Our bodies <clears throat> won't allow us to do some things that we used to be able to do. But you know what? I like to, I like to remind those that are shut-ins and those who have providential hindrances and, and those that have physical issues that come but they're not able to get down with kids or with parking lots or whatever else that might be available for somebody to serve. I like to remind them that the most important ministry going on in our church is the ministry of prayer. And you can be a part of praying for what God is doing in his church. Get involved in the ministry. Where have you put your hand to the plow? <clears throat> Where have you said, I'll be there. You can count on me every week. I'll be there. Therein is the problem. I'll be there every week. We've lost, too often, we've lost a sense of loyalty and a sense of commitment. And we've been distracted by numerous other things. Not that those other things aren't necessarily important, but they aren't nearly as important as what God is doing in his church. I haven't ever been to California. I don't know that I'll get there before I, I go to heaven. <clears throat> but if I do, one of the places I want to go is to the redwood forest. See the redwood trees. Those are trees that will stretch some 250, 300 feet high into the air. They're enormous in circumference around. Some of them can be as old as 2,000, 2,500 years of age. But you know, the amazing thing about those trees, well, there's a lot of amazing things, but one of the amazing things about those trees is that they have a very shallow root system. Four feet, six feet, 10 feet, maybe some to 12 feet deep. That's their root system. But those roots, while they're not very deep, those roots can extend as much as 250 feet in length so that those trees interlocked in their roots interlocked with one another so that when the storms come blowing in off of the ocean the wind and uh, the uh, the uh, hurricanes come blowing in off of the ocean those trees are so interlocked with one another that they're enabled to stand together together they stand to weather those storms <clears throat> I suggest to you that the church is a place where we should have 
our roots, our root system so implanted and so intertwined with other believers that we're able to help one another stand in our present evil day for Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to think about your church for a moment. When you're not here, do you think about your church? Do you think about your people, the people that are here that you would normally be gathering with when you're on vacation and you're off enjoying yourself and having a good time, and rightfully so, I'm going to do the same. Do you ever stop to pray for your church while you're gone? Or to think about the people that are your people that are gathering together with whom you've interlocked the roots of your life with one another so that the whole of us can help each other to stand strong in the days in which we live? The church is not a matter of, well, that's the option for the weekend. The church is the opportunity for us to do something significant in this world that lasts for eternity and changes people's lives forever.